Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg. The Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton is still on vacation. He will be back next week to talk all about the ups and downs of the Mets season since we've last heard from him. But today, a little something different. Rustin Dodd, whom you might remember filling in from the, for Tim on the Mets beat this week and, and on the show last week, caught up with Nick Davis, who is the filmmaker for ESPN's upcoming 30 for 30 about the 1986 Mets, a team that obviously has a, a huge place in, in Mets history, probably the biggest place in Mets history. It's called Once Upon a Time in Queens. Uh, it is a great chat. It's a really interesting talk about making this this project. So I'm going to turn it over to Rustin. Okay, Nick Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I just I wanted to start here. So very quickly, where were you in 1986 and uh, what was your relationship to the 1986 Mets? Well, I am a huge lifelong Mets fan and uh, I was 21 years old in college in 1986. Uh, and um, I it, it was the culmination of a you know childhood dream to see the Mets finally winning a World Series. Um, I was four in 1969 and like to sort of pretend I can remember that victory, but I didn't really remember. Um, and watching this team come into the 80s and, and, and emerge from the ashes of the 70s uh, when they were in the toilet and the city was in the toilet uh, and, and watching the team and the city come back uh, in the 80s was so thrilling. And the formation of that particular team and the characters and the personalities on that team was so exhilarating as a fan in, in the mid 80s that um, it, in a way, it really is the culmination of a lifelong dream to be able to tell this story uh, on film. Yeah, where, can you remember where you were for game six? I can. Uh, I was, um, I, I am a very superstitious Mets fan, as many uh, of us are. And I never liked to interrupt what I was doing uh, to watch a game. And I was, uh, I had auditioned for a college play and I was in a play uh, Saturday night. And when the, the game happened, I had actually snuck my roommate's watchman, which was, uh, you know, this dates me, but it was, well, it was 1986 dates me, but it was an old, you know, television with a really long kind of, it was like a flashlight with a television at the end of it. And I'd snuck it onto the stage. Um, I was playing an anchor man and I had very few lines, but I just set up the watchman on the, on the, the table that they'd given me and I wrapped it in a jacket and it just looked like a, you know, a piece of, 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 of the set. And so I was watching the game out of the corner of my eye the whole night. Um, and then I couldn't watch the actual 10th inning until the play was actually over and the play ended and I 
got back to the TV and it was five to four. The Mets had scored their first run back. Uh, and so I got to see Mookie's at bat while I was standing, you know, in, in the theater, um, surrounded by other fans who were just watching, uh, my roommates, little watchman. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing moment. Yeah. So the documentary, you know, obviously places the Mets in a very specific time in New York, you know, um, this team coming together in the early 80s. And I, I'm just curious, how, how do you think the story of the Mets in the, in the 1980s, kind of their rise fits into kind of the larger story of New York? Well, as somebody says in the documentary, Joe Petruccio, who is an artist who also worked for Delafamina, the advertising agency that came up with the magic is back slogan, as he says, like, you know, as the city came back, the Mets came back. And not that the Mets had anything to do with it, but it did sort of feel like it. The The city was recovering from the, you know, Ford to City drop dead and, and, and the blackout of 77. The city was recovering and, and you know, Wall Street was recovering and, and the bulls were running rampant. And, and there was a sense of wildness that was coming into the city that the Mets perfectly captured and perfectly expressed as they got one star after another so that by 85 they had these four tent poles gooden strawberry hernandez carter all on one team and it was it was so exhilarating and and thrilling and also dangerous there was definitely a feeling of danger in the city and a feeling of danger about the 1986 mets we all knew it at the time i mean if fans knew they were partying hard and you would hear whispers and stuff and then you know four of them get arrested in the middle of the season at a, a brawl uh, after a brawl at a nightclub in houston and so you just felt like well at, at any minute the wheels could come off um but somehow they didn't yeah, you mentioned some of those characters. Um, obviously, Mets fans get a lot of Keith Hernandez each night uh, on, on the broadcasts, and he's very entertaining in the film. And there's a moment in the film where Lenny Dykstra uses the word surreal. I don't want to spoil it, but then he proceeds to spell it out, S-U-R-R-E-A-L, and explain, <laughs> explain what it means, which I, I really enjoyed. I'm, I'm curious, were you present for all of these interviews with, with, the, with the players and the oh, yeah characters from the 86 Mets and did any of them surprise you or what what was uh, you know any in their openness I yeah I think I was surprised by their openness um I was present for all the interviews uh, well except that many of them were in COVID so uh, during the pandemic where we had to switch to remote interviews so for Lenny Dykstra for example he was in Los Angeles I was in New York I was in my office and I was zooming in with him they placed the laptop next to the camera so it looks like he's looking at an interviewer who is just off uh, to the side of the lens uh but that's me on a laptop um, yeah, I, they all impressed me with their openness and their willingness to tell the story. And as I've thought about it, I think it's just a function of time. I think you get up into your, you know, late fifties, early sixties, and you just don't care anymore. You're not trying to protect your reputation. You're not trying to sort of preserve some image of yourself. You, you just want people to know the real story. And, you know, uh, to a man, they really want to have the story told in its complete form. I think when I first approached them, some of them were a little reluctant. They feel like, oh, not this again. It's going to be so negative. And, you know, Daryl and Doc and Daryl and Doc and Doc and Daryl and the whole thing. Not the film Daryl and Doc, but just like enough with all the misery. 
And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm telling the complete story that begins in the mid 70s with with the, the, the bottoming out of the city and the team. And the first hour, the first episode is the coming together of that team, the rise of that team um, and, and the piece by piece, you know, falling into place of the whole team, you know, as, as Doubleday buys the team and he hires Frank Cashin and gives him the authority to make the right baseball moves and gives him the resources. And, you know, it's, it's, I've said this, in, you know, it's a metaphor that when I was talking to the, my wife about this long before we had even sold the series to anybody, I was telling her how it was just like so great. To, and it was great at the time to feel these characters join the team one after the other. She said, oh, it's a heist movie. And it's true, I came to think of it that way, that it's like, okay, you need a safe cracker, Lenny Dykstra. You need a cat burglar, Daryl Strawberry. You need a getaway driver. You need all of these pieces uh, in order to make the whole thing work. So that by 86, as Wally Backman says in the film, they all just fit together like a glove. The chemistry on that team was just off the charts and their desire to win was off the charts. And as a baseball fan, that really surprised me because I, I sort of felt like, well, don't all teams want to win? And they all said, no, they've been on a lot of teams where it's not really about winning. It, you know, you, it's about, you know, doing your best and, and, and padding your own statistics. Um, you know, Ojeda said, uh, you know, you go three for four and we lose. If you're smiling, somebody's going to punch you in the face on the 86 Mets. Like it, it's about winning at all costs. And that is... Uh, you know, and and that was the 80s in New York City, too. You know, we we talked to, to Oliver Stone, who wrote the line, greed is good, about 1986 New York City. In New York City is where he wrote that line. And, and that was the spirit of the time that I wanted the film to express. You, uh, you mentioned this is a full story of, and it's told in, you know, four episodes, almost four hours. Did, was that was that the plan going into it? Did you feel like this would be that sort of a wide of a scope and, you know, four episodes to tell this whole story? Yeah. I mean, when I first conceived of it, I thought, I, I, I just thought, oh, baseball, seven, let's do seven. <laughs> but uh, the, my partners at Major League Baseball convinced me the market didn't want seven and we shouldn't do seven. So we, we, we developed it as four. And the truth is, it was very hard to get it down to seven hours. The first rough cut was six hours and 25 minutes. And, and actually, you know, it's four television hours, which is 50 minute hours. Yeah. So it's really, we had to get to 320. Um, and it, there is so much story and so many stories that, that getting this to time was a real challenge um, because there is, there's so much to tell and it is, it's epic. It's a big sweeping sprawling saga of a team and a time and a place. Yeah, did you feel like you could have done four hours just on on their social lives in 1980? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at a certain point, it's like, you know, you do have to make some decisions because you're telling a story. And so, you know, you know, what story are you going to tell that really shows how wild they were after hours with regard to alcohol? Okay, so that's one story. And what story are you going to tell about how they treated each other? Okay, well, that's a slightly different story. But you start piling those up. And at a certain point, you just feel like, I get it, I get it, they partied, you know, and so you have to make some decisions about well, what is going to be representative of what's the best partying story. Um, so every story had to bring something different to the table. 
And there are a few that, are, you know, that, that, that we had to leave out and I miss them, you know, but, but the fact is I miss them in the abstract. I don't miss them when I watch the film. I just sort of think, ah, it's too bad we couldn't find a place for that great story, but there wasn't one. Any, any stories that, that you came across that you weren't familiar with during this process that, that you found particularly entertaining? Yeah, well, entertaining, the ones that came to mind were more heartrending. Um, I wasn't familiar with, you know, at the time we all thought, okay, we know Daryl Strawberry haunted troubled, angry, you know, you know, getting in fights uh, with his own teammates. This is in 84, 85, uh, you know, Doc Gooden comes along, Dwight Gooden comes along and it's like, this guy is perfect. He comes from a great family background. This is terrific. I had no idea the depth of the trauma that Dwight Gooden went through during his childhood. And some of the stories he told about his childhood were completely new to me. Um, the fact that his mother shot his father because Dwight told her, oh, that's where dad sees that woman. You know, that's like, okay, yeah, that's enough to maybe traumatize a kid. Uh, and and I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not a clinician, but maybe even drive you to, to you know, escape uh, in drugs and alcohol. So like that was new to me. Um, the depth of Keith Hernandez's psychodrama with his father was completely new to me. Keith Hernandez had a wonderful, loving, domineering father who, as Keith said, like the movie that, that he really, <laughs> and he brought it up, I didn't even ask him, but the movie that, that for him exemplified his childhood was Fear Strikes Out, where Carl Malden plays this domineering father who is quite literally driving his son, Jimmy Pearsall, played by Tony Perkins, pre-psycho, insane. And so, you know, that, that Keith Hernandez chose that movie uh, to, to talk about his childhood, that was revealing to me and interesting and very, very new. Yeah, the, this story is obviously, you know, very familiar to uh, Mets fans, obviously of a specific generation, but, um, you know, the documentaries for a wider audience as well. Uh, what were the challenges of making this, you know, a story that, that you know, baseball fans or even non-baseball fans, uh, you know, want to consume? Yeah, the, the, the challenge really was to stay out of the way and let this story tell itself and, and organize itself. The, the characters in this story are so good and so compelling that even if you don't know baseball, you, you will follow along and really enjoy it. We've been lucky enough to have a couple of public screenings and we had one in Central Park. And a friend of mine brought a friend of his whose husband was away and she is Irish has no knowledge of baseball, but had nothing to do that night and said, well, I'll come for the first hour. And she stayed for both hours and loved it and came up to me afterwards. And I'm not gonna do the Irish accent, but she loved it and said, it's human interest, it's human interest. I said, well, you don't know baseball. She said, it doesn't matter. The, the, the characters, you know, Strawberry, Gooden, Dykstra, Mookie, Hernandez, you know, sadly, Gary Carter is no longer with us, but we tell his story as well. It's like, those are great characters. So. Even if you don't know baseball or you hated the Mets, it, it still makes such compelling viewing. And the biggest challenge for me as a filmmaker was in some ways, like get the Met fan out of the, out of the room. <laughs> like the Met fan in me had to take a backseat to the filmmaker who was letting the story tell itself as properly, as entertainingly, as dramatically, as compellingly with as many surprises as possible.
Nick, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the time. And we look forward to seeing uh, the film on back-to-back -back nights on uh, September 14th and 15th. 14th and 15th, that's right, two hours each night. Well, it was a, a pleasure talking to you and, and thank you very much. Thanks again to Rustin and to Nick for that chat. The film debuts September 14th and 15th on ESPN. You know, Tim and I have been talking all season about Topps Project 70, and I need to mention that there are currently three Mets-related cards for sale through Topps Project 70. They're very cool. My favorite of the three uh, is by an artist named King Saladin, and it is a full-on reimagining of Pete Alonzo as this, like, berserk-looking cartoon polar bear. Um, obviously, he's polar bear Pete. He is... Uh, surrounded by flames, it looks like his his bat is actually just a a, a bat shaped flame, uh, and it is just a, a very lively card and fun to look at. There are a couple more also very cool. Um, Futura, a street artist, reimagined uh, Daryl Strawberry in a. 1958 Topps baseball design, but with a sort of abstract and, and contemporary background. It kind of looks like a, a three-striped Mets flag with some, there's some World's Fair imagery on there. Uh, it's a it's a real cool card. And I think for all Mets fans of my age, seeing just seeing the image of, of young Daryl Strawberry at the plate certainly conjures up some feelings. And then the last one, which is fun, is a Nolan Ryan card. It's funny, Nolan Ryan's Career, I think we associate so much with with the Angels and the Rangers and and the Astros and and not the Mets since he really didn't have his best years there. But um, his most valuable baseball cards, because he did come up with the Mets, uh, are those with the Mets. And uh, it so happens. So the the Ryan Topps Project seventy card is by New York Nico. Uh, it puts him on a recent Topps, a twenty nineteen Topps card. But the the image behind him is actually the World's Fair, and and Nolan Ryan is kind of just staring out like he he wants nothing of it which is a very nolan ryan-ish look uh i'm into the nolan ryan card because a nolan ryan rookie card was the most coveted card on my block growing up what we did like baseball cards were very much our our currency um and we scaled cards which i think is a is a tradition some people had um the way we did it was you would line up some better cards against the wall sort of tilted down and then with your, we call them the scrub cards, which we kept in like a, a big old athletic bags, you would sort of fling them Frisbee style at the nice cards. And if you knock down the nice card, you got to keep that. So there was gambling. You would have to, you'd put up a couple of yours and and your opponent would put up a couple of theirs and you're, you're playing to try to get their cards. It seems like a great fun way to increase your card collection. What we failed to consider in the late 1980s was that uh, people were going to care a lot about the condition these cards were in. And the, the Nolan Ryan card that was on my block was probably passed down through generations, all of all of whom uh, were scaling cards to trade them. And so the, it wound up in, in my house. Uh, and I believe it remains in my parents' house. But before you burglarize them, understand that there is a pinhole in Jerry Kuzman's face, which is a, a very unfortunate thing. I will not be retiring on my baseball card collection as I once thought I did. Um, so if you come into a Topps Project 70 card, do try to keep it in better condition than me and my friends did when we were growing up.
That's all the show we've got for today. Again, thanks to Rustin Dodd and Nick Davis for the insightful chat about the new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary. Tim Britton will be back next week, and he will be excited to hear about uh, the last couple of weeks of New York Mets baseball. I look forward to telling him, and you can listen to it soon. Peace out.